by his angel to his servant John. The word signified is from the Greek word samano, which means to show with signals uh, and signs. And that is what is taking place. Revelation, if you want to understand it, you must understand it predominantly. It is a symbolic book. Next part, much of Revelation is taken from the Old Testament. And there's all kinds of guesstimations, roughly. Uh, typically, it's been around 70%. Um, I had a teacher who said 85% he could see was coming from the Old Testament in part or in whole. That's just a lot. And so the reason is, is because those who were reading Revelation in the days of John, they knew the Old Testament. Old Testament was part of their culture, part of what they read, part of what they spent time with, and it was the Word of God. So they were familiar with it. And that's um, where God spoke from. And the last point here, Jesus is coming, not will be coming. Um, I was listening to a sermon from uh, a friend of mine, and he took five minutes at the beginning just going through the New Testament showing where it says he is coming, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming. This is the thought of the disciples. This is the thought of Paul. This is the thought throughout the, Old, the New Testament. Jesus is coming. Uh, it's always looked in a, in a con contemporary sense that he's coming very soon. With that realization, we live like he's coming. And as we discussed last week, he is coming in our lifetime. You say, wait, 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 what do you mean? His coming is no further away than your life. When you die, your next thinking, your next thought will be the second coming. And that, so yes, it may be thousands of years. I don't think so at this point in life's history. I think it may be decades, maybe, possibly. We don't know, but we do know one thing. Once I die, my next waking moment will be seeing him coming. So his coming, for me, is no longer than my age. The amount of life I have left in my age. All right, I'd like to uh, get started with our, our, our lecture, sorry, that's what I'm calling it, for today, and that is Revelation's Lampstands, and I'd like to just, uh, again, have a word of prayer uh, for my thoughts. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to speak through me. Uh, if something is not what you want, I pray that you would veil it in some way, and Father, I pray that you would uh, let your love come through as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest generation. Um, <laughs> they fought through the largest global conflict in recent history. Uh, when they are thought of them by those who know them, it's often with respect and pride concerning their humble yet noble accomplishments. They are the World War II generation. Um, for many, they were just youth when the war between the Axis and the Allies broke out. And yet they signed up to fight for a cause they believed in without hesitation. Death wasn't as much feared as not accomplishing the grand goal of freeing the world from oppression and fear. There's a man from this generation that made the news quite a bit this last week, and his name is Captain Tom Moore. Uh, he is from the United Kingdom. Uh, he turned 100 years old on Thursday, and uh, just a really neat guy. Um, that mindset of his generation, that we're going to do what it takes to fight a problem and bring relief, caused him to start a fundraiser. His fundraiser was, I'm going to walk 100 laps around my garden for my 100th birthday, and there is a need right now, and that is the National Health Service of the UK. And so I'm going to do it as a fundraiser, see if I can raise 1,000 um, pounds, which would be probably a little bit more like $1,200, $1,300 for in U.S. Well, it was amazing because uh, he didn't raise that much. He raised about the equivalent of $40 million USD in his attempt. Uh, he did walk his 100 laps, by the way. Um, Amazing. In addition, he actually sang a duet recently with a famous guy named Michael Ball. And in that duet, it was an old song called You'll Never Walk Alone. And when he did that duet with him, he became the oldest man last week to top number one position in the UK charts. Amazing. What an inspirational guy. Um, his, he's got celebrity status, as you can imagine, right now in the UK. Um, for his birthday, they actually did a RAF, Royal Air Force, flyover over his house, 
with a spitfire and a hurricane, which is fantastic. Many of you are familiar with history, just great. Um, he received 140,000 birthday cards, including a personal one from Queen Elizabeth herself. And on top of that, he received a video from Boris Johnson wishing him a happy birthday. And one more thing, he was given an honorary uh, promotion in the army from captain to colonel. So th he had quite a week. He is uh, quite a famous guy at this point. Um, I, the reason I'm bringing up Tom Moore is this. The spirit of the greatest generation still motivates people to do things. There's something that's there. And I believe without a question that the early Christian church had their greatest generation. And now I'm saying this in, in um, quotation marks because as you read the Bible, you get the impression, and I don't understand this, but the generation that's living right the second coming is considered the blessed generation. They're the ones that get to see the culmination of all the prophecies of all time. But you and I, when we look back, sometimes we don't look at ourselves and feel that great about ourselves. So we look at the greatest generation and we look backward. And we think of maybe the early church. 60, um, they were the ones who actually lived with, talked with, ministered with the actual Son of God. Can you imagine that? You are walking the road with the Son of God. You're eating lunch with the Son of God. You're ministering alongside the Son of God. And when you're in the middle of something and you make a mistake, He tells you, here's what you did wrong, here's how to fix it. You can't beat that. What kind of life it would be to be the live of that generation? And more than that, it wasn't just because of who they knew. After Jesus' ascension, they took the gospel to the then known world. An impossible task that was only done because they were willing to give everything for the cause they believed in. In fact, many of them actually did. Sixty years after Jesus' ascension, persecution was being poured out worse than it had ever been poured out before. Um, the future was looking bleak, and there was really only one of the original greatest generation still left. His name was the Apostle John. And I'd like to just read a, a statement from a book I like, entitled Acts of the Apostles. It says this, He did much to confirm and strengthen the faith of the believers. He bore a testimony which his adversaries could not controvert and which helped his brethren to meet with courage and loyalty the trials that came upon them. When the faith of the Christians would seem to waver under the fierce opposition they were forced to meet, the old tried servant of Jesus would repeat with power and eloquence the story of the crucified and risen Savior. You can almost hear him saying it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked upon our hands of handled of the word of life. That which we've seen and heard, we're declaring unto you. That kind of power, can you imagine? There's nothing to refute it because he saw it. By the way, it's still the testimony that's the most powerful today. I could give you all the knowledge in the scripture, all the background of a PhD brings in and share with us, and I honor those high attainments. But the power is personal testimony, and John had a personal testimony that was phenomenal. You know, there's uh, uh, something that happened to John as a result. He wasn't liked. Uh, the church loved him. I mean, he was their bastion of, of anchor, a bastion of strength. He was an anchor to them. But you know who didn't like him? The Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership. They couldn't wait to get rid of him because they didn't know what to do with him because he was so convincing in what he said. So finally, the Roman emperor said, we're going to throw him in a pot of boiling oil. I shared this a little bit last week. They tried to boil him. It didn't work. So the very hands that threw him in are the ones who pulled him out. And they said, you know what? We're going to silence him. We're going to take him and throw him on this penal colony, on this rocky, semi-inhabited, uninhabited, habited. It was a penal colony, so there were slaves there. Uh, island off the coast of what we modern-day Turkey. We're going to separate him. We're going to, can I use this word, isolate him 
from the rest of the world, and he is not going to be able to anymore uh, share and how wrong they were. Because when John was on Patmos, something happened. When John was on Patmos, he met again Jesus. Jesus came to Patmos to meet with him. And as we shared last week, it's sometimes in our Patmos experience that we have a new revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what we see taking place with John. He's got this new revelation. And boy, he can't wait to share it. In fact, Jesus tells him to share it. He writes it down and he gives it. That is the book of Revelation. That's where we're coming from. So with that being said, there's some basic information I'd like to start out with. Uh, there are several sections in the book of Revelation. Every section begins with one of these two things, and sometimes both, a vision of Jesus Christ and or a vision of the sanctuary. So th these two come out as the beginning of every single section, kind of lay a foundation for the section to follow. The section we're looking at in this short series here is the seven churches. And this is the vision of Jesus we're about to look at today that is the beginning of that section dealing with the seven churches. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, and starting with verse 9. If you could turn there with me, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. The Bible says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of of Jesus Christ. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. He knew what it was like. He knew what his fellow believers were going through. He would have been very well known to those who he was writing to. Uh, again, he was, as I've alluded to, one of the last of the great generation. Then it says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice, as of a trumpet. So here, uh, John says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So I want you to imagine he's in, um, what is the Lord's day? I should probably just discuss it briefly, very briefly. There are several different ideas out there. I'm going to bring them up very briefly because that's not our main focus today. If you want to study more, I encourage you to do so. But a lot of people have always used the word Lord's Day to refer to Sunday. Um, in the Bible, nowhere do you see the phrase Lord's Day being applied to the first day of the week. Some have said Lord's Day has to do with um, the eschatological day of the Lord, you know, the end of time. Well, that sounds nice, but John's saying, I'm in a vision on a specific day. It's not a time period I'm in vision on. It's a specific day, so that doesn't fit either. There is a Lord's Day that comes throughout the Bible, and we find about it written in several places. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the seventh day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. So it's the Lord's Day. Uh, we find this being used in Isaiah chapter 58 in verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, again, we see this reference, the Sabbath, seventh-day Sabbath, being referred to the holy day, uh, God's day. And then there is, of course, Jesus himself said, I am Lord of the Sabbath day, Mark chapter 2, verse 28. So Lord's day, that means John here is on the Sabbath day, is in spirit. He is worshiping and he hears a voice behind him. Let's continue. The voice said, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, John hears this voice. He recognizes the voice, and then something happens. He turns around. We read this in verse 12. You're going to find this concept several times in Revelation. So I'm going to bring it out here. This is going to be repeated in, John, in Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 7. We'll see it in Revelation chapter 17, among other places. John hears something, and then he turns and sees it. 
And there's a connection between those two. And often what he hears isn't the same as what he sees, but it is the same. Does that make sense? It won't make sense completely. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 5. We're familiar with this. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turns around and he sees a lamb. Are they the same thing? No, but were they the same person? Yes. It's because both symbols were being used the same way. So that's a concept. Here it is. He's hearing something. He turns around, and then we see in verse 12, describe what he sees. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, what does he see? One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about with the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 15 says, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So you have this picture. He turns around and he sees one like to the Son of Man. And I get excited when I read this because this phrase, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. Um, In the book of Matthew alone, he describes himself as the Son of Man 32 times. Um, Over and over, he says, I am the Son of Man. Where does this Son of Man phrase come from? Well, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel uses it all the time speaking about himself. Um, The angel says, Son of man, do this, and he's speaking to Ezekiel. But in Daniel chapter 7, we see Son of man being attributed to Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, there is the ancient of days and the Son of man comes before him, speaking of Jesus Christ. So Jesus uses the phrase Son of man in reference to himself. Um, Something else, it says he had a long robe on. And I won't take too much time on it, but if you, were in a, if you were a high priest or if you were royalty, specifically a king, you wore a long robe. The poorer you were, the shorter your clothes. And I'll leave you to make some application on that one. But it's interesting to note that the more covered you were, the more holy and royal you were. That was the picture in their time. So the high priest has a, the word pederos, which is there for, the, for the, um, the clothing, actually means down to the feet. He is completely clothed. But I, please note, he's clothed with the clothing of a high priest and kings. That's what we, wanna, we don't want to miss out here. Um, he has um, this white hair, eyes like a flame of fire. And you would say, this is a kind of an odd way to describe someone. Feet like brass, voice like many waters. Out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. Again, we could spend some time and go through each one of these and it'd be fun. I'm giving a broader overview, but I will, I have to hit on the two-edged sword just because we already hit on it today. That was in our Sabbath school discussion. Um, a sharp two-edged sword is a symbol of the word of God. And it's, uh, it cuts both ways, as I, like one person said. And, 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 and it's, it, both the Old and New Testament can do some cutting if they need to do so. By the way, God only cuts to heal. And that's something we, we must remember. We see that when we look at Christ. And then you see a face shining as the sun. Did John pull this description out of thin air? Because he's saying like as, like as, like as. That means he's comparing it to something. Where do we see this? Remember, where does a lot of the information in Revelation come from? From the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 10. You mind turning there with me? I found this fascinating when I started looking at it. Daniel chapter 10, and we will be looking at verse 5. Daniel chapter 10. And verse 5, Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with a gold of uphaz. Interesting, now we see linen and we have a gold belt. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning. Oh, that's starting to sound a little bit like something. 
His eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so they fled away to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, and my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hand. And he said to me, Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he began speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear Daniel. The description in Daniel chapter 10 is very similar to the one in Revelation chapter 1. Why am I bringing it up? Just to emphasize again, John is not just picking and choosing. John is referring back to the Old Testament to bring out symbols to help people understand. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, let's finish this section because Revelation chapter 1 actually finishes uh, this section with the words that we just saw in Daniel chapter 10. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. We saw that in Daniel 10. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, what was that phrase? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So the scene in Daniel 10 gives us a little bit of a background to what we see taking place in Revelation chapter 1. All right. Who is this a picture of? Well, as soon as we say it's the Son of Man, we know it's talking about Jesus, okay? Um, here are some other things that help. If you continue, we just read this. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I was dead, but now I'm alive. In fact, it says, I am dead. Let me read it directly here. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, or the grave, and of death. So this is the picture that's being laid out here in Revelation chapter 1. This is Jesus, a picture clearly of Jesus, the glorified Jesus. Has John ever seen Jesus glorified? Yes, the Mount of Transfiguration. If you look in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, it actually uses one of the descriptions we get, Matthew chapter 17, describes it as bright and glorious. In fact, let me see if I have that right. It was like the sun shining in its strength, Matthew chapter 7. 17, excuse me, verse 2, talks about that. The two-edged sword, by the way, that's not from Daniel. You didn't see that in Daniel 10. You know where you get that from? Isaiah 49, verse 2. There's, there's a lot of things being pulled together to give this picture of Jesus that John sees and that John is describing. Why would it be important for a believer in the end of the first century, in the early Christian church, to know these things about Jesus? I am the first and the last. I think it'd be important because it's good to know that he was first in the universe and he's going to be here till the end He's here. He's not going anywhere. I heard one person say it that way. That's a good thing to know when you're in a difficult time. Right now, I believe that we aren't in the early Christian church persecution here in North America. We don't have that right now. But we are struggling at times with trials, and we wonder where, why, how. And he says, I am first and I'm last. I was here long before you. I'm going to be here to the very end of time. I'm not going anywhere. That's good news. And he says, I am dead and I was, excuse me, let me, <laughs> I've been quoting this one wrong, so let me read it again. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then, uh, which is again, do you think that death was a real option? Something that happened a lot in the early Christian church? I mean, we, 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 we just hear about John being put in boiling oil. For a normal human being, that would be done, over. So death was something that was always faced. So when Jesus comes up and says, I am alive, instantly he's like, I was dead, 
but I'm alive and I'm going to be alive forevermore. That's, a, that's almost a reminder of, remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. What I have, you're going to have. You may die like I died, but there is a resurrection. I am that resurrection. Because he says next, I have the keys of death and the grave. Death is not the end. And sometimes I feel we approach death as if it is the end. We're scared of death. We're scared of, of suffering because sometimes we're scared of it because we really don't know what's next. And John is being told by Jesus, uh, I don't know if some of you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, but if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these words are in red. This is Jesus speaking. Just a very, very beautiful picture. All right. So what is Jesus doing? He's dressed in the robes of a high priest. And I think I should probably... He's dressed in the robes of a high priest. My only problem with this picture, if you're seeing it on your screen, is his hair is the wrong color. But uh, it's a great picture otherwise, so I wanted to make sure I use it. Please, we're going to focus on the other elements here. Uh, he is... Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, doesn't just say he's in the midst of the candles, uh, candlesticks or candle lampstands. Notice what it says in verse one of chapter two we're not going to go to the church of ephesus uh's message this week we will look at that next week it says these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands so jesus is not just in the midst he's walking in the midst so he's dressed in the in the attire of a high priest and then he's walking in the midst of the candles this is not a picture of the heavenly sanctuary this is a picture of earth. And God is walking personally among his churches, among his people on this planet. What a beautiful picture. That is, it's exciting. So let's go back. In the Jewish temple, there was one priest who was in charge of the candlesticks. Because you know candlesticks, you have, a, you have the seven branch candlestick uh, that is in the holy place. Sorry brain freeze there is in a holy place in the jewish temple did you know they actually had 10 of them so they had five up each side of the holy place you and i are probably more familiar with the hebrew sanctuary where there was one of them across from the table of showbread and then you had the altar of incense so in the jewish one you had a priest whose only job was this don't let the fires go out the flame go out don't let the light go out and he would go through and he would trim he would uh, make sure the oil was in his job as the priest was to always make sure that was taken care of. In the Hebrew sanctuary, in the wilderness, it wasn't just any priest. It was the high priest. In the Hebrew sanctuary, it's the high priest, and that was his job. Every morning and every evening, he would go in to offer incense on the altar of incense that would go into the most holy place. And when he would do that, he would go over to the, the, um, the candlesticks, and he would trim them. He would do whatever it takes to make sure that their light was shining. He can't miss this. He knew the lamps. He knew them very well. He knew how long it took for this to happen. He knew when it needed to be trimmed. He knew how to get the best light out of the candlestick. The high priest knew that. And when we see this analogy, we see Jesus as the high priest among the candlesticks. He knows them. He knows what it takes for their light to shine. Because I have a feeling each one of us is different and it takes different things for our light to shine. The rebukes and promises that are given to the seven churches. We're going to be learning that uh, more next week. The rebukes and promises that were given to the seven churches are to help them shine. That's the purpose. It's going to help them shine. He knows what they're going through. Um, what is the first phrase that you read? Not first phrase, but a phrase that you read to every single church. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. First words are, I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 9. 
I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 13. I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 2, verse 1. I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. And chapter 3 and verse 15. Thank you. I know your works. He knows. Jesus knows his people. Remember, a church is not a building. We need buildings, but that's not what the church is. The church is the body of believers. God knows what it takes for his people. He knows their works. He knows everything about them. Jesus said the hair of our head is numbered, right? When a sparrow falls, he knows. He knows much more about us. What good news today. Jesus knows us. And why, why lamps? Why candle stands? Why lampstands? Sorry, candlesticks, lampstands. I'm getting mixed up. Why would, why would uh, that be used to describe? Yes, it's sanctuary terminology, but why couldn't he use something like trees? I saw seven trees, and he was walking among the trees. I saw seven mountains. Of course, we don't want to go there right now because that's where we'll get into Revelation 17. But why can't, why can't we see seven houses or something? He says seven lampstands. Why? Because God's people are supposed to be lights. Crystal clear. God's people are supposed to be lights. What's Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Let your light so shine before men. That's, that's the purpose. Uh, by the way, that's what our children's story was about. Letting our light shine. God chose candlesticks. By the way, whose job is it to make sure the light's shining well? According to what we're reading right now in Revelation chapter 1. It's the high priest. It's the high priest. You know, sometimes I, I uh, you can't do it, but I wish I could just, if I try really hard, look like my child when, never mind. But I try really hard, maybe a flame would pop out. Maybe I would shine a little bit brighter if I could try a little bit harder. And the reality is, it's not my trying that produces the flame, it's my surrender to the trimming of the high priest that produces the flame. And there's a possibility right now that some of the things we are facing in our lives is a little bit of trimming. I don't like that thought. I don't like uncertainty. I have a good friend of mine I just heard today say, I don't like change. <laughs> I mean either. I don't like it. And we are facing change. We're facing the unknown. But the reality is maybe it's the trimming so that the flame can be brighter. Remember, he's in charge of the light. Our job is simply to be the surrendered lamp. There's incredible things that I believe Jesus wants to do. Now, verse 16 of Revelation 1 says that he had seven stars in his hands. In his right hand, excuse me. And then verse 20 tells us what the seven stars are. And this, is a, this will be our first, uh, not first, but another introduction to the symbology that's being used here. Verse 20 says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, the word translated angels means messenger. And if I were to use another phrase, I would say they are the... Leaders, sorry, complete brain freeze leaders that's good news i know your church i know your people i know what's happening and the leaders they're in my hands i've got everything under control that's the picture that you're getting here in revelation chapter one um, verse 19 write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place there are, um, uh, please note these things, right? The things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. Now, this is a little bit of theology. I'm going to do it for about two minutes. If you want to tune out, please don't last longer than two minutes because I'm going to be coming back, okay? 
In the interpretation of Revelation, there are several key views that are used today. One is preterism. Um, people who believe it are called preterist. And that is everything that we see in Revelation took place in John's day. Preter means past. I got it wrong on my Revelation test two months ago. And a teacher looked at me and said, you will never forget that preter means past. I said, you got that right. Um, I forget what I said, but it obviously wasn't right. Preterism is everything in John's day. Uh, that means when you read Revelation 13, Revelation 20, Revelation 1, it's all in John's day. Nothing, nothing is beyond John's day. Idealism means, of, or idealist, means it really doesn't mean anything specific. It's kind of broad. Um, for example, there is a good moral lesson that's coming out of it. I'm making sure I've got this here. A good moral lesson that could be from it. And you can read anything in Revelation and get a good moral lesson. It applies to everybody at all times. It's very much there for you. There's futurist or futurism. And the idea in futurism is that nothing after, it's actually should say after chapter 3. The slide is incorrect. From chapter 4 onward is in the future past our day. So nothing after, uh, everything after chapter 3 is in the future. Um, chapter 4 and onward is all in the future. Again, the slide is incorrect on that point. Well, I put the slide together, so I'm incorrect on that point. So, and then you have historicism. Historicism believes this. The, the, the message of Revelation starts with the time of John and proceeds through to the end of time. That's what they believe, historicists believe. Um, if you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel was based upon a historicist mindset. Daniel started with Daniel's day, kingdom of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, etc. Then when Medo-Persia was in charge, it started with Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, etc. It started with Daniel's day and then proceeded to the end. Revelation is the same concept. Um, while I believe that there's things we can uh, learn from different viewpoints, I think it's important for us to, to be familiar with uh, realizing that Revelation is a history. According to John, here's what he said, write the things which you have seen and the things which are, that's John's day, and the things which will take place after this, after John's day. So again, clearly John is, is talking about what you and I would maybe use the word historicist approach from my day and then proceeding onward. All right. So that being said, I like to, things were, um, messages were sent to seven churches. Here's a, a, a picture of these seven churches. I don't know if you can get a full screen picture of this uh, if you're looking at it at home. Um, here are the seven churches. Uh, you see they're kind of in a, in a, a horseshoe shape there. Um, the interesting thing about the seven churches is um, they were truly seven cities. And so the messages that John's giving are real and applicable in their day. I, I, don't, want to make, I don't want to take and say these are not applicable because they're very applicable in John's day. Uh, the, the issues that they fought were real issues. Uh, for example, let's look at um, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. And we're going to be looking at the church of Pergamos. And it says, But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And if you instantly, when you see Balaam and Balak, is that Old Testament or New Testament? That's Old Testament. He's taking us back to the Old Testament. We can learn what happened. And what they did is Balaam wasn't able to curse them, and so he brought in a stumbling block, which is we're going to have a feast to our gods, idol worship, and with that feast we're going to have a little bit of a party. Mm, fornication. If you're wondering what that means, is free sex. That's what it was, it was crazy. And so that was the picture. This was the issue that was being faced in the early church in the first century. So Pergamus is facing that in their time period, even though Pergamus is definitely applying clearly in a historical way as well. And we're, we're going to be looking at that. But here's what it says. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Very clearly it's spelled out. Uh, we find that this was a real issue and it was not just in Pergamos. You'll find us in Thyatira as well. All right. Um, let's look at our next one. 
Uh, here's a quotation from a book that I thoroughly appreciate called Acts of the Apostles. I read it, and it gave me a description of John and Patmos that I, I just I never remember reading before. So if you haven't read, if you happen to have the book Acts of the Apostles, uh, the section on Patmos is fantastic. The whole chapter is about John, just about John was living like at that time. So let's go back. Let's read it here. The names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different periods of the Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and is symbolic of that fact of that the messages extend to the end of time, while the symbols used to reveal the condition of the church at different periods in the history of the world. In other words, Ephesus is going to describe a certain, the first part of the Christian church. If you read Ephesus, it's, it's a pure church. It's, uh, it has a little issue. It's lost its first love, but by and large, it's a great church. And then you go to Smyrna, right? And then we go to Pergamos, and then we go to Thyatira, then we go to Sardis, and then we go to Philadelphia, then we go to Laodicea. And each church, in a, in a very striking way, connects with different periods of church history. Ephesus totally fits the early church in the first century, the description very well. And when you get to Laodicea, if Laodicea doesn't describe the church of today, especially here in North America, wow, I don't know what does. And so there's definitely a, clearly a connection, and you can see this historically, and we're going to work at this uh, some the next couple of weeks. Um, I want to emphasize, I think that these seven churches had clear meaning and relevance in the churches when they received it originally. But I also believe that it was relevant um, and gives a picture of God's church throughout time. Now, there was something I wanted to bring out. Oh, by the way, I, I find this interesting. There's a lot of people who challenge what I just shared with you. A lot believe it, but there's a lot who challenge it. But even those who challenge it, here's what they say. There's an amazing parallel between the specific, uh, uh, the sequential churches and the sequential periods of church history. It's an amazing parallel. Uh, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just amazing how it, it's parallel. I like to smile and say, I think it's more than just parallel. And here's why. One last thought, and then I need to... In Daniel, Daniel 2 started at Daniel's time and went to the end. Daniel 7 started in Daniel's time and went to the end. Daniel 8 started in Daniel's time and went to the end. Daniel 10 and 11 starts in Daniel's time and goes to the end. Four sections that start in the end and go. Started at Daniel's time and go to the end. Revelation is a similar format. Revelation starts seven churches, Daniel's, uh, John's time to the end. Seven seals, John's time to the end. Seven trumpets, John's time to the end. God uses this repetition to teach different elements of his people. You find it in Daniel, you also find it in Revelation. And I find it fascinating because how do we interpret the Old Testament? How do we interpret Revelation? We use it by looking at Old Testament symbols. The book of Daniel is most closely related to Revelation and a methodology of education that's used in Daniel is going to be a similar methodology I believe we see in Revelation. All right, that being said, um, here's the last one. Not only do I believe it had application in their day and then in a historical way, I also believe that it has a universal application. Don't shoot me for saying this, but I believe there's a universal application. Here's what I mean. Um, there was postal roads, and that's what those lines are supposed to be, between the different churches. How many letters were sent out? This is a trick question, so think, let's think about it carefully. Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 11. How many letters were sent out? It wasn't seven. It was one. One book with seven messages to seven churches. And so, that book went to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they read the messages to all the churches. And then it was taken to Smyrna, and they read the verses to everyone. The message that was given to each church was read to every church. Does that make sense? So everyone was getting the message. Uh, very, very important, I think, that we, we realize that. Um, each person read all of them. Um, and then think about this. In almost every single one, it says this. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. It doesn't say he that is Ephesus, let him hear. He that is Smyrna, let him hear. Every message says he that hath the ear to hear, let him hear. And it's going to be read in every single church. It's important to realize that these had application. Just want to emphasize this element. 
Here in North America, we don't proudly say this, but we realize we are lean towards a Laodicean mindset, and we're going to see that as we go into this. However, I wouldn't say that about my persecuted brothers and sisters in China. I wouldn't. There's not a Laodicean scenario in much of China. I would lean more towards Smyrna. Maybe Ephesus. But different messages can apply to different people in an individual way why the broad scope of the history of the church is clearly what we see laid out from Laodicea, excuse me, Ephesus the whole way to Laodicea. All right. Um, got it. I realize that I have a lot of information. I'm almost finished. Hold on. I'm going to speed up a tad bit, but don't miss out in the last section here. So what about the candles and Jesus? Um, in the introduction of every single, when Jesus introduces himself to each church, he gives a portion of the description that was in Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation 1, remember that description we read of him with the eyes of fire and he had the keys in his hand and the seven stars in his hand and he had feet like bronze and he had hair like white. We saw that description. Every church gets a, a portion of the description of Christ. Ephesus gets this portion. He holds the seven stars and walks among the seven candles. Smyrna gets this one. He was dead and alive. He's the first and last. Smyrna gets this description. Sharp, two-edged sword. So when Jesus comes to Smyrna, he goes, I'm the one who's got the sharp, two-edged sword. You see what I'm saying? So he gives the part of his description that is most applicable to them. He doesn't give everything. He gives the part that's most applicable to them. And you get to Thyatira. He says, I have eyes like flame. I've got bronze feet. By the way, Thyatira was a messed up church, and you will get a chance. They have a message twice as long as all the other ones. And we'll get to it. He wants to go, I've got my eyes on you. I can see what's happening. Um, Sardis has seven spirits of God and seven stars. Philadelphia, interesting. He has the key of David. He opens and shuts doors. I find it interesting because Philadelphia, as you go through the churches, there are two churches that have no condemnation. It's Smyrna and Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is called weak. <laughs> they may have no condemnation, but they're just weak. I mean, it's because they're, I don't know. Well, we'll get when we get to it. Here is a message as being applicable directly to them. And then Laodicea, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. Um, there's something that we can't miss in this section as we close. In the candles in Jesus, Jesus describes himself in ways that each church can understand. Jesus doesn't come to every single one of us the same way. Yes, there's the same truth. Please, I, I don't want to be taken as some kind of like, there is no truth, you can do whatever you want. That's not what we're saying. But God comes to us in a way that we can understand and we, we can relate to. Um, it's when all the churches are together that we have the complete picture of Jesus. I don't know if any of you have been to an international conference of Christians. I had the privilege of being to an international conference in 2010 in Atlanta, Georgia. It was my first time to see 30, 40, 50, I forget how many thousand Christians from all over the world coming together to worship. I saw the people from Papua New Guinea dressed in their clothes from Papua New Guinea. I saw the people from uh, Africa dressed in their clothes from Africa. I saw the people from China dressed in the way they were in China. I, I heard the languages. People would, I was in a booth, which was awesome to be in a booth for a week and a half seeing these people come by. And, and they would try to talk to you. And, and you had these different personalities coming. Some of them would get in your face and say, give me whatever you've got. I'm like, are you representing a Christian church when you come here? Anyhow. And then there are others who, they don't say anything, and they just stare at you, and you know that they want something that you've got. There's all these different personalities, but it was God's church. And sometimes we have to remember that God's church is broader than us. And we could see that clearly. It's all the churches together that give this complete picture of who Jesus is. No two churches have identical pictures. I think it's a good thing to remember. Jesus knows the needs of each individual church and member. He knows. He doesn't just say, I know you, and then gives the same blanket 
pharmaceutical... I missed it. Drugs to each person. He gives you something different for your healing each person. He may say, and I'm going to pick on someone who's sitting here. You don't put your camera on him. I'll just pick on him. He doesn't go up to say, Charlie, here's what you need. And then say, Gerard, you need the same thing. And Abby, you need the same thing. And so do you, Rashida. And so do you, Gason. No, no, no. He may say, Gason, I got a little something that needs. And he, and he hits you and you're like, man, I didn't want that. But he hits you anyhow because he knows that you need it. He gets something totally different to Charlie. Why? Because we are different people. We have different needs. And God relates to us in that way. I praise God for this. Because you and I have different needs today. I don't know where it is that your wick needs to be trimmed. I don't know where it is that your oil is a little low and it needs to be filled up. But the high priest does. And he's walking among us today and saying, I'm in charge. Don't worry. You are under my control. There's a major problem I think that we face sometimes. And I'm going to close with this. Sometimes as Christians, we start getting into a habit of living someone else's Christian experience. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like, we, 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 we want to be like them or we think like them. Often, if we're kids, we kind of take on our parents' religious experience. And what they have is what we have. And we don't have this individual, personal relationship with God. I know it was that way for me. I knew I went to Sabbath school. Those of you who are watching, Sunday school, like Sunday school. And I, and I studied. I knew my Bible verses. I read Bible stories all the time. My favorite Bible book is Uncle Arthur's Bible Story Set, Volume 4. And I would read about David and his mighty men over and over again. And, but, but my knowledge wasn't necessarily a personal relationship. And there needed to come a point where I personally knew Jesus. I made my decisions not because my parents worshipped this day, not my parents worshipped this way, but because I personally had a walk with Jesus Christ, and that's why I did it. That is what we need. And the God of Revelation is suited for that to take place. He is the high priest who knows the candles, he knows the lamp stands. He cares about us today. So my question as I close is this. Do you know Jesus personally? Not someone else's Jesus, but yours. That's my desire for us. Can we pray? Father in heaven, you personally are involved with our lives and you're wanting us to see that. You personally care about us and you want us to see that. Please, help us, Father, to surrender to your high priestly ministry on our behalf. Help our lights to shine, but most importantly, right now, Father, we just want to know you personally. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.